Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and we're all about the arts today. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Juneteenth, uh, which is going to certainly have a special cast today in the midst of the um, Black Lives Matter and our urge to really figure out what are we going to do about systemic racism. So I'm anticipating it's going to be, it's going on now as uh, our show begins. So I hope it's going to be of interest to folks and we'll make sure in our materials that you know about it. So I am here with an extremely knowledgeable person today on my favorite subject in the universe, and that is the creative industries. But today we are talking about it in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, shall we call it, as opposed to just the protests that have happened over the past couple of weeks, because I think most of us are um, agreeing that um, we may hopefully be on the early end of a movement that will continue because there have been protests before and they haven't uh, really achieved what protesters had hoped for. In this case, the, the protests have been so massive that we really, everybody is hoping that this is going to result in not just some changes in police policy, but looking at the deeper underlying issues that are um, driving discrimination and as a result of discrimination, um, uh, much less favorable conditions for the development of the lives of uh, black people in our country. And I'm particularly interested in, in making sure that people learn what they need to learn, whether through school or through training programs, what they need to know to deal with the economy as it's evolving. And anybody who's listened to my radio show or read my newsletters knows that I harp on this issue that if, if folks are not prepared for the jobs as they are developing um, and they are left out, that's a recipe for disaster. Because ultimately, if, if you don't have hope and opportunity and you can't express the, your talents, you wind up really um, in a bad place. And then that's when things hit the fan. So Sue has also been very much involved in the creative industries and in economic development in general, too. Um, why don't you just introduce your perspective, let's say, uh, for a couple of minutes? My perspective or sort of back, background, just what kind I think. Of a, kind of a combination of the two is I, I, I didn't want to just say, I don't want your bio, but more about, you know, where you're coming from, let's say. Okay, where I'm coming from is I really started out, uh, I got into the area of vocational education uh, in the education amendments of 1979 when the Congress asked for a national study of vocational education, and I ended up... Um, designing the plan for that and co-authoring the report that led to the Carl Perkins Act. And a lot of the opportunities for African-Americans are based on opportunities into educational programs. I mean, you can get into the creative industries purely on your talent, but there's an awful lot of sectors that you really need the training in the background and some of the connections you make in educational institutions. And there's been a history of discrimination, actually, in vocational education since the early days. I mean, when I was doing this study, we discovered that uh, almost all of the students taking vocational education were coming from the lowest economic, social economic status classes, 
some minorities, but minorities weren't even getting into these programs. They were being lumped into a program called general, which is not academic, and it's not vocational. Uh, and then I think we discovered that vocational education has such a bad reputation, a bad context that people saw it as, as tracking their, their children away that in Carl Perkins, we changed the word to career and technical education. Um, but, and a lot of this career and technical education goes on in the community colleges now too, which just in, before the mid 1980s were junior colleges transferring to universities and starting in the 80s, they re became really vocational or career and technical education schools too. Uh, but still they had a, a lower status. I mean, I think the African-American families wanted their kids to go into higher ed and they wanted them to get into career tracks. And I think part of the reason that they haven't looked more seriously at career and technical education is a, a very deep misunderstanding within education of what it actually is, what it encompasses and what the opportunities are. I don't think they really know that um, you know, how many people are even in the program because they aren't even counted in our census. So many of them are self-employed and are in contingent industries and secondary occupations, uh, contract workers. And I don't think they understand how important it is to the companies nowadays. We did a survey of manufacturers across four states and we asked them how important artistic creativity was to their uh, choosing a, a new employee and hiring somebody and 77% said it was important. And we define this not as problem solving, which is, can be mechanistic, but more as artistic forms of creativity. And they still felt this was really important. Uh, yet there's been, I think, a real lack of mis of understanding within the educational system. And it really, I think it goes back to the Department of Labor's efforts to even, even project the need for these occupations because they look they project employment, companies that employ people, but so many in the creative industries and the creative occupations are not employed, they're self-employed, so they're not counted, and at a much higher rate than most other industry sectors. So one thing, they don't know what the opportunities are and we haven't had the funding to create the programs because we can't show the occupational demand. And there have been efforts lately to try to do that, but not really very successful yet. Actually, I, I could so easily get distracted by this um, particular uh, a, a strain of the conversation because this is something that's really important to me. I feel that we have uh, terribly undercounted, especially in a city like New Orleans, where um, creativity um, tends to be so... Uh, natural a part of everyday life and and street life and neighborhood life and stoop life and family life that um a lot of activity uh, is not being counted that would make huge difference in defining the uh, scope and and dimensions of our uh, of our economy i hope that the study that uh, the creative alliance of new orleans is uh, engaged in now um, can uh, approach uh, dealing with that, but we're still going to have the issue of how to count that. Yeah. I mean, I think Ann Marcus in the University of Minnesota did a study of, of different occupations, and she said that nationally, half of the people who are counted as employed in the, as musicians are employed by 
by religious entities, organizations. Huh. So we're missing all these people who are just out on the streets or working in bars or have groups that are, that are, that are playing music. Um, but I also think that in addition to the, what we call the core, sort of the core creative economy, the artists, the musicians, that we don't understand how much it's affected all of the industries that we have. You know, when I, in the 60s, I worked for GE. I was an engineer. I was a chemical engineer and I worked in manufacturing. And at that time, you competed by making things cheaper. All we had to do was beat everybody else's price. And we made 98% of the TVs that were purchased in the US were made in the US. And then 15 years, 20 years later, all of a sudden, we found we couldn't compete with Japan, with Germany, with uh, Western Europe. And we figured out we had to make things better and not just cheaper. And that worked for a while. Now everybody has all the methods of making things better. And the only way is we, that we can really compete in high cost societies is make better things, which means things that are creative and innovative and provide some kind of an experience to the, to the user, to the customer. And I don't, I don't think we understand how deeply that's going into our manufacturing sectors, our retail sectors, and even the health sectors. And wouldn't you say, isn't it true that right now what we're going through with the COVID crisis and even the social justice crisis um, is going to lead to an even greater focus on um, innovation as a, as a critical element in, in um, determining what's competitive and, and how um, a business is going to shape and, and how uh, uh, people are going to uh, develop their careers? around innovation. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's what businesses want. Finally, more and more for a while, it was just people getting to work on time and doing a job. Uh, and now they really want people who are creative can, what we used to say, call thinking outside the box. It's not so easy to teach that. I mean, it's been hard to do. The universities, the, the community colleges and the uh, career and technical education have found some, I think some pretty interesting ways to teach that. But even when you teach that, I think one of the things missing in all of the programs that we, we have for the creative sector is that a lot of these people are going to be starting their own business and they, don't, they, lack, they lack the business skills. So I think we also have to find ways to... Uh, teach them how to run a creative business. Yeah. And this is actually something that the Creative Alliance developed a curriculum to do that. Stu, we haven't even talked about this yet, but we'll talk about it offline. But we have a curriculum for exactly that. But um, we need to have that curriculum somehow funded. And that goes to the issue of, again, having the people who uh, are the gateway to funding for um, career training in, in whatever category um, to recognize the importance of the creative industries, which really hasn't happened yet. Um, why is this so important? Uh, tell, me, tell me if you agree with me that this is particularly important for um, our black citizens and our women and our other um, citizens who maybe don't have the kind of capital resources that uh, some do. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming, and I've seen some copy on this, that in fact, um, the creative uh, practices are um, easier to enter uh, than uh, um, as a small business person, as a, a practitioner, than some of the more um, complicated 
um, industries that require more capital investment. So there are some people who are saying that if we really want to look at um, ways to shortcut the process of getting more um, income and opportunities into the black community, it's through the creative sector. That's true. You need a less capital investment than you would need if you were making something or maybe even um, doing a retail business. But you also have, an, have to have enough resources to be able to, to keep it going long enough to become profitable. And I think that's a real issue. We did a study of, of uh, African-American entrepreneurs in Kentucky and Tennessee for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Found the biggest limitation was the lack of this family capital to keep them going, especially when they, when they couldn't get the loans they needed from the banking systems or from venture capitalists. So I think it's, 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 it's family and friends. A lot of people start their businesses off the capital of friends. And uh, again, that would be the same situation in the black community. Less of your friends are going to have the capital to help you grow a business. And also, I think I means one of the reasons it's important to get into these school systems is not so much as what you learn, but the connections you make there and the credentials you need to get the resources that you need later on. And I think part of the problem with getting into these programs is also that, um, that we recognize skills and we recognize test scores when people are entering. We don't recognize uh, unconventional kinds of talents that people have. And I think that the, the economic development system doesn't either. So I think we have to figure out a way to, to make sure that we uh, have a way in for people who maybe aren't going to be that, that for some reason don't get the test scores that people have had, have had more advantages and had more opportunities in their families from the past and how we can get that recognized by the school system to get them into the programs. I mean, there are some, when you're talking about teaching creativity, there've been some really fascinating things that have gone on in the, in Bellingham College out in Washington, uh, Gerald Pumphreys, the, the president there, created a welding rodeo to teach. Um, in his welding classes, he would one day every semester give his students a pile of scrap metal and they'd have a, a one day to make a piece of art out of it. Then they would have a contest, they'd auction off, and they would compete to see who won this. And he even brought in teams from Denmark and, and Scotland to compete against his teams. Wow. wow. They copy this in a lot of other places. And I mean, there are some things like that going on around the country, but there's lots of examples of schools that have done some incredible things. A, um, a college in, uh, in a, one of the poorest towns in Ireland had a, a, a abandoned boys' reformatory, and the furniture industry was in such bad shape in Ireland that they took this and turned it into a furniture college, and they had been teaching these kids woodwork. And they combine with the um, with the um, Galway Technical uh, Institute, and they created a, a program that offered degrees and introduced art. The students had to produce an ex an example of their artistic ability to get into the school. Once they got in, they learned how to make artistic furniture, and it's become. Uh, they started out with just kids who wanted a uh, an associate degree, and then they added a bachelor's degree and a master's. Now they even have a PhD program there. 
So, so I, let me say, um, in, in a way, what you're saying is that there are a lot of small, um, uh, innovative approaches to introducing the idea of creative practices to um, our youth. Uh, but it sounds like we don't have a real um, systemic is a word we're hearing a lot right now. We don't have a real systemic approach to this. Um, your, your, your Perkins program uh, comes the closest to it. Um, but even that program, I found locally, I was unable to get a creative industries accreditation because they, the workforce commission here felt that was too broad. So um, I'm still looking for how to, to get something like that to be replicable in the city. We I did a few programs in it, but we didn't get them uh, to the replicable stage. If you, if you were in the federal government, um, as we come into our a, a new um, uh, uh, a new um, administration and uh, you were looking to address both the issue of the discrimination that has affected the um, ability of um, our black citizens to advance in the uh, new economy and you wanted it to be more systemic and you had the power to tell a president what to do what would you recommend? What would be your, surely you've thought about this. I know I'm, I'm sure throwing this at you without having prepared uh, you to think about it, but surely you've thought about what, what would be of the WPA dimensions, for example, that, that we could theoretically um, be pressing whoever's gonna be the next president, prayerfully it's gonna be somebody different from who we have, that's just my opinion. But um, what would you recommend? What, what have you got in mind? Have you been thinking about what would be a big way to do what we're talking about? Well, I think there's, there's interesting models that could be replicated on a much larger scale. But first of all, I, have, I want to add one thing that I haven't really looked very deeply into new, what New Orleans has. But when I look at the website, I see some of the seeds of what you want that are already there. You've got this thing called Sci High, um, which is a career and technical education secondary school that has a makerspace already. That's got, seems like from what they show on their website, some fairly sophisticated uh, equipment. And I think part of the challenge is how do you get the African-American population to get involved in this, to learn about it, to get them excited about it. And it may be that they are already, I don't know who's in this program. They have a digital design program. And I see that Delgado's got quite a few programs too in music and uh, in arts. So, but if you wanted a sort of a strategy, I think, I think you start out by, I wanna make sure the guidance system understood what the opportunities were. So that's actually, um, so the Creative Alliance of New Orleans developed a program called Creative Futures, and it was, it was intending to do exactly that um, uh, through a curriculum, uh, provide um, a kind of guideposts and um, a lot more information about uh, the kind of uh, work that's available uh, in the creative industries fields. And, and that's the kind of thing I think about a, a lot um, and, and would like to see happen at a much greater scale. Um, 
I'm not sure what it's going to take to have that reach that, again, replicable level. But it's funding. It's going to be funding in part because um, the programs that you're talking about that have started already have happened at least in part through federal funding through your Perkins program. So I would say there's, there's two things that I think are really important. One is, is how do you integrate art and design into the standard curriculum? Um, and how do you get, for example, people who are making things in New Orleans or even in the retail sector or tourism to understand that bringing people who have the artistic talent of their programs will change the way they think about what they do. Let me give you one example, because I did a study of the Milwaukee Institute of Art and, Tech, of Art and Technology for the OECD, and uh, GE has a healthcare system there, and they're having some problems trying to figure out how to get uh, people in developing countries in Africa to get testing for breast cancer, and they were stuck. And they brought in 40 artists, gave them, paid the school $10,000 to come in for a semester, work with the engineers and come up with creative ideas to work with African countries. And wow. they continue this, they call it the Compassion Project now. So how do you get uh, technical education and you know the business programs to integrate, and how do you get employers then to bring in maybe people out of the arts and design who are not your traditional students, maybe as internships and maybe in a, some kind of an apprenticeship program. So you're bringing the, the arts together with all of the sectors that haven't been thought of as artistic to change, to make them more competitive and it provides opportunities for the, you know, the people that have these talents and hopefully the large percentage of those would be in the African-American community, but you'd have to make an effort to make sure they're, either equally or overrepresented in these programs. And, and knowledgeable to begin with in order to, as you said, um, make sure they're aware of them and that aware of the opportunities. So that's a, a really important part of it. Um, do, do you agree that the creative industries is a leading growth sector of the economy going forward? Um, I think it is if you, if you, uh, Depends on how you measure growth. If you measure it just in, in a GDP, probably it wouldn't show that. But if you measured it in employment, it would. If you look at how many people are actually earning their living or a good part of their living from the arts, and it's, some of them are growing faster than others. I mean, the ones that I think of that are growing really fast are the graphic designers, the, um, the ones that combine technology with the arts, people who are designing apps. Um, but even the sort of the entertainment industry, all these things are growing as people are looking more for experience to spend their money on than buying things. And that just puts more money into the pockets who are providing, of people who are providing experiences. And, and here in the retail industry, they are talking more and more about the importance of experience over the actual um, products uh, that they are selling, that they have to be selling the experience. Um, which is uh, a difficult thing to achieve at a time when uh, retail is not open. So we definitely have um, a, a timing um, issue uh, that we're faced with going forward. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Because I think that we should be using this time that we have right now when things are kind of in, in, in pause to explore these, these alternatives and to really understand um, how to come out of this uh, more intentionally rather than 
oh, let's just get back to normal. That's we all know is not going to happen. So um, how much worse do you think it's going to get before it gets better? I'm just curious. This was not a, a question I planned to ask you, but it's sort of hard to resist. We're all wondering this, you know, so how can you close out an interview about, you know, how to make sure that people understand their economic opportunities without asking, where are we on this timeline of, I, I hate to call it recovery, just emerging uh, into newer phases or different phases of this yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea, but I do think because of the, of all that's been going on with the demonstrations lately and how many people are out on the streets, that I think we'll have, we'll be testing it fairly soon to see if that cre creates an increase. I mean, I have four or five grandchildren that have been out almost every day in New York and Boston and uh, Richmond. And I mean, I hope none of them get it, but I think we'll we have a, a of an ongoing test to see if that makes a difference and if it doesn't then i wonder if people are going to think about opening up a little bit more than they than they have been i don't i think it'll be a while before we're going to be sitting next to each other in stadiums watching baseball games but i think but not such a while before some people are sitting next to each other in stadiums for political events to start <laughs> right. of someone running for office well um, Stu, there's so much more we can uh, plumb, and I look forward to um, having you back soon and pursue this conversation further. So as things develop, uh, both through the study that is working here in New Orleans on, on looking how to develop our creative economy that Kana was involved with, with the downtown development district that you and I are both involved in, but um, in general, um, looking uh, uh, forward to um, understanding better how this uh, period that we're in um, can be turned to our advantage in one way or another, and certainly to the advantage of some of the folks who are out on the streets right now decrying what is um, a, a much broader issue than as, as, as dramatic and as important as the issue of police violence is the um, broader issue of the economic opportunities for people and the educational opportunities to me are the heart and soul of what's, what's going to shape the future. That's I would agree with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time. And um, as I said, we'll have you back. Okay. Thanks, Jane. You take care. So um, I have with me today a very intriguing artist and um, an equally intriguing gallerist who has been showing artists for, I now understand, more than 13 years and has just moved her gallery. And I'm very curious about the move and how it's going to accommodate an unusual, I think, show for your gallery called Conceptual Creations, Collage, and Assemblage. So um, let me see if you can share with us your move, what that's all about, and what your new space is like. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you, Jean. Uh, yes, Octavia Art Gallery has moved down the street on Magazine Street to. 700 magazine. Uh, we're thrilled with our, our new space. Um, it's in the Colorama uh, with 42 condominiums above us. Uh, so we're, we're still nestled in the Arts District of New Orleans, um, one block off of Julia Street, and uh, still part of the Art Walks. And um, really just thrilled to have um, you know, a long-lasting permanent location um, to house our artists in for 
many, many years to come. Uh, as you know, uh, our mission really has been to um, provide a platform for our New Orleans artists. We began right after Katrina, uh, pretty much. That was my impetus for opening an art gallery was finding a sanctuary where our artists could exhibit their work. And it's really uh, just been an, a, an amazing journey for me, um, having met so many outstanding artists around our region and been able to provide them with some extraordinary exhibitions and very excited about this new exhibition that will open July 11th. Uh, I'm going to go for a minute to um, to talk with um, uh, Scott Anderson, who is one of the artists that you're presenting in this coming show. Um, and um, uh, Scott, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to hear from you because your work, mixed media and works, explore themes of repair. You collect swatches of spent sandpaper with their marks, tears, and sanded off paint pigment. And then you repair the pieces, mounting and patching them with gold or silver leaf, which sounds like the outcome is quite elegant and beautiful. But the notion of using these rough materials and um, repairing them is quite a unique approach to making art. And I think it's always uh, so interesting for viewers and the public and, and potential collectors uh, to understand how you came to develop such a um, intriguing process that uh, people wouldn't necessarily associate with making art. They might associate it with, um, well, repair work. So how did this evolve? Uh, it's nice to be here with you. Um, the story's kind of a personal one. Part of the reason I like collage is that each artist has kind of a unique relationship with the materials they use. Uh, 10 years ago, I was involved in a pretty bad accident. And when I was going through physical therapy and quite literally repairing my body, I started studying up on ways that people repair, you know, items from the daily world. If you've got a teacup and it breaks, you know, how can you repair it? And I came across a really beautiful example of repair in Japan, where when, let's say, a ceramic object breaks, they would use a natural resin to bind it together, and then they would dust the cracks with gold or silver. So rather than trying to erase the repair, they actually highlighted it. And when I started working with these materials, uh, I was renovating a house in the Lower Ninth Ward. And when I would get done at the end of the day, I would have these piles of spent sandpaper that had these beautiful marks. They looked like small abstract collages. And I liked the idea of taking something that has a utilitarian aspect, uh, a short lifespan, and then treating it with kind of care and consideration. So I would kind of lovingly press these pieces of sandpaper, mount them, and then wherever there were cracks or holes that were ripped in the sandpaper, I would go back in and repair. And so those small little individual collages that were only four by five inches you know, each, 
ended up expanding almost quilt-like into these larger abstract compositions. How has the public responded to that work? I mean, how have people who are not um, familiar with a, a kind of, I guess you would call a distressed process, um, uh, taken in your work. I, I, I know that the end result is something that's elegant, but nonetheless, um, they have to really kind of think about what you've done. Yeah, it, it's been interesting. Um, one thing that I've noticed is when people hear my backstory, a lot of people, be it for medical reasons, personal reasons, emotional, most of us have gone through some sort of a repair process ourselves during our lives. And mm -hmm. those that have really connect with the process and the work. And because they're abstract, I'm not treating repairs just a, a literal idea. But I do think the abstraction allows people to kind of project their own personal histories onto the pieces. And so it started out as a project that was immensely personal to me, and obviously it still is, but it has been very rewarding to see how warm and receptive the, the general audience has been. Um, you know, I think that people are more and more uh, getting accustomed to um, artists plumbing uh, totally different strategies of making art from the classic painting and sculpting. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and as this show, you know, show will deal with, when you look at collage and assemblage, when it started back in the early 20th centuries, it was a way to critique and free the art making process from the traditional modes of creation. And the Dada is, you know, the collages, um, of the abstract expressionists into the pop artists. And each person has kind of a unique way that they uh, approach the material. And it is still a very viable growing field um, that each year produces unique results. So Pam, uh, many of the um, other artists that are in this coming show have also elected to um, arrive at their final works through um, unusual processes. So James Henderson, who is exploring the concept, as I understand it, of memory and nostalgia, uses found images, um, photographs that he then um, integrates into his work. Um, tell me about him. Well, James uh, is a New Orleans artist um, who we have been showing for um, many years now. James um, does like to delve into nostalgia. He likes to comb through um, a lot of uh, different um, uh, repair shops, um, looking for old photographs, looking for old books, uh, and to really wants to tie into our um, the kind of the sentiment of of the past and and. Uh, and many of his um, of his works take you back to a, a different time. Um, they have a lot of innocence to them. They may have some glamour, uh, and um, it's really about transporting transporting the viewer, 
taking them out of the present day and then moving them into the past and kind of rekindling maybe some memories of their own, some memories of his own, uh, maybe some ideas of perfection um, that we may have sought as children, but when we became adults, know that those were unattainable. Um, but it is a nice dialogue between the past and the present in his works. I noticed that some of his work has been used in film and television programs such as Bad Girls Club, The Twilight Saga, and Breaking uh, uh, Dawn, Part One and the First. What is the connection between his work and these, and these productions? Well, I think once again, um, his work um, translates very well onto a movie set. Um, and it also brings a different dimension into the dialogue or the action that is happening in a movie. Um, it may, you know, um, ignite some curiosity as to why a particular character has this uh, portrait of this, um, of this beautiful woman from the 1950s um, up on her wall or an old um, crystal chandelier hanging, um, uh, you know, amongst purples and blacks um, with this type of plastering uh, that he uses and resin that he uses on the back wall. So I think it's, a, it's usually just another dimension to the, uh, to the action that's happening in a movie. I want to go back to um, Scott for a minute and ask Scott, because I'm sort of, you know, it's always interesting to hear artists talk about other artists. So, uh, Scott, um, you're familiar with Regina Scully's work? Yeah, and actually we live close to each other down in the Lower Ninth Ward. Oh, uh, perfect. Okay. Oh, you live in the Lower Ninth. And we, my husband and I sojourned there for a bit, had a wonderful uh, place, and I loved it terribly, but it was more work that we could actually handle. But um, yeah, so tell me about uh, Regina Scully's uh, work um, from your perspective as an artist who also works in unusual media. Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, I was really happy to join Octavia. And one of the reasons is that they do represent some of my favorite artists in New Orleans. Um, Regina absolutely being one of them. She has, she's one of those painters that she absolutely deals with abstraction and the brushwork is beautiful and how she layers and builds up these images, but it always has a reference to the landscape. And I think that's one of the things that I find the most interesting because as an abstract canvas, it is what she does with the picture plane is create these worlds that you can absolutely transport yourself into. Um, the depth and the nuance that she gets, uh, is incredibly rich and it's not a static practice. You know, each body of work has some nuance to it that has been very different than the work that has come before. But I think she's one of the strongest artists we have working in New Orleans right now. Mm. Now, Pam, um, you've also got Robert Tannen in your show and um, I'm uh, very familiar with his work for mm -hmm. 60 years now. And um, I think one of the interesting things about his work, aside from its universality, I mean, he deals with so many different realms, uh, having been working most of his life in urban development and design and 
uh, community work, neighborhood redevelopment, um, just all kinds of things, bringing arenas to the city, bringing all kinds of economic development projects and so on. But his, his, he's not an artist who's particularly focused on aesthetics, which makes his work definitely very different from the work of most artists. It would, it, it would have a, 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 a um, more of a home in a way in New York where you have a lot of work more similar to what he does now that he's been doing since he was a teenager in the 30s, no, 40s. Um, in New York when he was part of the 10th Street movement that was a very early American art movement. Um, so I'm curious as to how you feel your clientele is going to receive his work because it's definitely different. Well, Robert is a treasure, or Bob is a treasure in our community, Gene. Um, I've worked with him on many different occasions with the, in the Lower Ninth Ward with the Preservation Resource Center with the New Orleans Planning Commission. Um, and I, I have a love for urban planning and, and uh, architecture. And, uh, and so I find that someone like Bob has a tremendous amount of um, experience as well as uh, thoughtfulness in that he puts into his work that I would like to be able to exhibit in my gallery in order to begin dialogues and begin the conversations that take place over urban planning in the city of New Orleans and, uh, you know, uh, in the country as a whole, how important urban planning falls into art and architecture. And, and I think, Bob is doing this with Box City. I think um, he is uh, a catalyst for conversation on how important it is to uh, out, outline our cities to where they are easily accessible um, for people walking um, to and fro and, and maybe not having to get into automobiles all the time or, or challenging environmental aspects. And this is, is so important at, at this particular time that we find ourselves in um, with the pandemic, with uh, the protests, with, um, uh, you know, just the status of New Orleans. Um, in 2020, uh, we all need to be cognizant of the structures that we're living in, how we can move from one to the other, how accessible are they, um, how environmentally friendly are they, and he's using cardboard, which is um, such a economic um, medium that is everywhere, and so this is a uh, a material that we can all identify with and we can we can walk around these structures they have a tactical feel to them and we can we can talk about our neighborhoods and and uh, our architecture in our city and hopefully plan wisely for the future 
And I know what Tannen often does, and he certainly did with Fox City, is invite um, the visitor, the viewer, to interact with the uh, art. And in this particular case, these boxes, which for him represent um, the limits of future housing as we maybe have to move our locations uh, because of the ocean rise and climate change. Uh, he's looking at, um, you know, how, how are people going to configure their new neighborhoods? And, and I, I appreciate very much your interest in neighborhoods because I, I know, of course, of your work long term in the preservation movement in the city, which is, which is why we're all here. If, if it weren't for the preservation movement, quite frankly, I'm not sure we'd all be here because um, it is a home for the creatives. Um, I, we're a little worried, some of us, about how things are going to go forward now, and and will we retain our creatives, and um, and and uh, what, how how is the survivability of our city um, going to uh, uh, succeed to overcome the challenges of of climate change that are are for us very existential because they're creeping closer and closer every day through the marshes up to our um, are the banks of our river. So um, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from both of you how you see the future of the city uh, from both a, a, the urban standpoint and from uh, the art standpoint. Where, where are we going? Uh, either one of you can start. Uh, I, I'm happy to. Well, it's interesting. I think one of the topics that we're touching on pertains to all the artists in the show where you've got somebody like James talking about personal histories and this idea of nostalgia. You've got Bob talking about kind of the rearrangement of the landscape around him. My work comes from direct engagement with the houses and materials I live in. And of course, Regina playing with these kind of imagined and real landscapes. I think one of the reasons that New Orleans, which is kind of my home for the last eight years, resonates so strongly with me is that in many cities, people consume culture from a distance. In New Orleans, we create culture when we want to see it. We don't wait for somebody else to do it for us. And I think that kind of almost like a frontier spirit of I will create the city that I want will be one of those threads that will be most important going forward because as 2020 has taught us, there are a lot more questions than there are answers right now. A lot of uncertainty. Pam, how about you? Well, I think Scott said it very well um, with the four artists that we're representing um, this month. And, and uh, I, I think it's a perfect time. Here we are in the middle of hurricane season and uh, um, with this pandemic going on as well. Um, we're, a very vulnerable city, there is no doubt about it. And as we saw after Katrina, it's up to the people living in New Orleans to um, provide leadership, to step up and, and, uh, and show us the direction that we need to move in to, to create our barrier islands, to stop the erosion of the wetlands, to bring some uh, greater industry into the city. And this will all benefit uh, the culture that we have, that we've had for many, many years there. But I think uh, 
New Orleans could capitalize on the fact that people are working remotely now, that, that uh, you know, people can find wonderful places to live in and work from there. And New Orleans is, I mean, people all over the world know us and they love us. And we hope to be a magnet for young people coming here. And, and these art galleries that are, that are opening up and showing the works of people like James Henderson, Regina Scully, Scott Anderson, and Bob Tannen, they are thought provoking and they are a wonderful entree into our city into, and into the dialogue that we have had going on for a long time. I mean, everyone is producing their, their art from a very, very thoughtful perspective. And uh, so I encourage people to come into the air condition, to come in and see this work. Um, plenty of room to social distance, no problems there, 3,000 square feet, wear your mask, and, and come in and have a night of tremendous conversation about the future of New Orleans, which is a topic that needs to be front and center on everyone's mind. And this is on the 11th, um, since uh, normally the openings of the galleries are on uh, the first Saturday, but that is the 4th of July weekend, so you all have moved to the 11th. And um, uh, you're open from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, and I just want to close by saying, because uh, we are out of time, that um, one of the things that I hope we will see more of and I've had the experience of doing a lot of outreach work with people in neighborhoods after the Katrina and, and actually before that as well. Um, there's so much thoughtful, creative energy on the part of people living in all neighborhoods in the city with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of educational capacity and all kinds of involvement with the arts who have something to offer. And, and more and more if we listen to our uh, culture bearers, to the native population of our city, um, and integrate what they've uh, brought to us over hundreds of years, um, it's going to assure our position going forward. I've always maintained that it's our history and our legacy that uh, is alive and well and is going to keep us alive and well going forward. Um, Pam Bryan and Scott Anderson, thank you so much for um, giving us some of your time. And I can't wait to see the show because I think it's going to be fascinating. And I, I hope my audience will um, definitely uh, uh, drop in on the 11th. Um, and what's your exact address again, Pam? Seven, 700 Magazine Street. 700 Magazine Street from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jean. Thank See you. you soon. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I think um, you can see that uh, we really tried to cover the field and uh, reach out to people in, in different parts of our, our lives here in the city. and. Um, it's just another Crosstown Conversations, and we'll have another one coming up the week after next, because next week it'll be Wendell Pierce who will be in this time slot. Thank you all for listening. Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations and WBOK.